Good morning. Good to see everyone this morning on this fine fall day. We get to start off with the baby dedication. So, Andrew and Janae, if you will bring Judah up. It's been an all-boy weekend. We've had four baby dedications, two twin boys at the 9 o'clock, 11 months old. They decided they wanted to grab the mic off my face. This is Judah. He's seven months old. And he's the son of Andrew and Janae. Andrew is our youth, one of our youth pastors here at the church. So let's uh, lift up Judah to the Lord and pray for him. Father, we thank you for this young man. Lord, we thank you for his life. Lord, we're reminded of the lion of the tribe of Judah. Lord, that's you. You've saved us. You love us. Lord, would you take little Judah's mind and heart, Lord, and cause him to know you, Lord, to all of his days, never know a day without knowing you and knowing your love. Lord, would you use his unique gifts and talents that have been there since the day that he was born, Lord, and would you use them for your glory? Lord, I pray for Andrew and Janae that you would give them strength, supernatural strength, to love this little one. Lord, patience and wisdom and everything that they need. Lord, to bring him up in the ways of you. Lord, we lift this family up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. There you go, bro. Love you. All righty. Now that we got the important stuff out of the way. A little life with all of the potential. All of life before him. This morning we are going to continue in the book of James where Eric left off. So we'll, we'll be in uh, James chapter 1 and we will be concentrating on 9 through 27, though this morning we will read um, the entire chapter starting at verse 1. 2 Timothy 3 and 16 says this, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means God breathed it. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. James is about practical Christian living. He's about instruction for righteousness. And so that's this morning what we're going to get. We're going to get lots of instruction in righteousness from James chapter 1 this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your goodness this morning. Lord, we thank you that we can sit at your feet and, Lord, worship you freely. Lord, that this morning we can open your word freely and, and receive from it. And I do pray that it would be implanted in our hearts. Lord, that this morning you'd also reveal things through your word, that we'd see your word clearly. Lord, that you'd bring correction. Lord, that you'd bring encouragement, that you'd bring strength through your word. Lord, we need you this morning to, to teach us. And we just pray you'd be glorified in our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this morning we're going to have instruction in righteousness, instruction to the rich and to the poor, the right perspective on 
being rich, on being poor. We're also going to have instruction in righteousness on enduring temptation, instruction in righteousness on dealing with conflict in a righteous way and with a righteous attitude, instruction in righteousness in receiving God's Word into our life and then, and then going out and walking and, and being doers of the Word, and then also instruction in righteousness that tells us and defines pure and undefiled religion. So we're starting at chapter 1 and verse 1, and it says this. It says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Now we know from last week in Eric's study that he did tell us that this James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And that also that at Acts chapter 15 explains how uh, James uh, wrote the letter concerning Gentiles and, and the conflict that had arisen, whether they would be circumcised or not. He's showing his leadership at that point in the church as well. And Paul in Galatians 1 and 9 says that after his conversion, he presented himself to James, the Lord's brother, at Jerusalem there with Peter. And so it was important for Paul to go to church leadership. And that shows that James indeed was in church leadership. Also, the Jewish historian Josephus, he records, he records the death of James at the hands of Ananus, the high priest at the time in Jerusalem. And Josephus said, said this, when therefore Ananus was of this disposition, he thought he now had proper opportunity to exercise his authority. Festus was now dead. You'll remember Festus from Acts 25. Festus dealt with Paul and brought Paul before King Agrippa, before Paul was ultimately sent on to Rome, uh, being imprisoned. And so it says that Festus was now dead, and Albinus, Festus' replacement, was but upon the road. Now, Festus and Albinus represented the uh, Roman government leadership over Jerusalem at the time as they were subservient to the Roman government. And so, with Festus dead, Albinus not quite there yet, the, the leader, the high priest, said, hey, I've got some time to flex some muscles. So, Josephus goes on to say that so he assembled the Sanhedrin, the ruling council in Jerusalem at the time, and brought them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James, and some others. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. So what better way for the high priest Sinanus to flex his muscles than to kill the pastor and the leader at the church in Jerusalem? So we recognize this James as indeed the James who wrote this book, and he says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Now, the scattering of the Jews, remember that this happened after the death of Stephen at the hands of Saul. Saul, who would la later believe on Jesus Christ and become Paul the apostle, but at the time was an enemy of the cross. And that, that is recorded, this, this actual scattering, in Acts chapter 8 and verse 4. It says, Now Saul was consenting to his death. That's the death of Stephen. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which is at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation for him. 
for Saul had made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. So what Saul had meant for evil, actually God worked for good because it got, it got the believers out of Jerusalem and they went to the far-reaching areas and preached the gospel. But James here writes this letter to a scattered church, living with the reality of poverty, living with the reality of a trial that might come up any moment, any second, knowing that at some point they were going to need an extreme amount of encouragement in the things that they might face. Some of them who received this letter from Pastor James when it was writ written that uh, to them, maybe they, they met in a house underground and, and they're now reading this letter from Pastor James. Some of them hearing this letter had a vivid memory of the night that Saul's men came in put dad in shackles and took him away to prison. Perhaps a older sister holding a young brother as mom cries for her children as she's taken away to prison. You see, they had real trial. They had real opportunity for trial and temptation into their life, and they needed a loving pastor to give them instruction in righteousness. Hey, what do we do through this? How do we handle this? What's our attitude to be? What's our emotions to be? What are we, what are we to think and how are we to react? So that's exactly what James does. And look there at verse 2. He says, my brethren. Now he uses the term brethren 15 times in five short chapters. 15 times in five short chapters he uses either the term brethren or my beloved brethren. You see, James didn't consider himself just the leader and the pastor of this church. He was their brother. He was their friend. They were his family. You see, in the one, if there's one drawback to a big church, it's really easy just to kind of blend in and not become family. To come and go and not have anybody that, that, that you can say that goes to Rocky Mountain even though you've gone here for years. Oh, that's my brother in Christ. That's my sister in Christ. That's my extended family in Christ. I would encourage you as James encourages his brethren. Pray that God would bring someone here, if this is your home church at Rocky Mountain, that you can call brother or sister in Christ. If not, you're missing out on, on part of the relationship we're to have in the family of God. The relationship that we're to have as a church, brothers and sisters in Christ, even though we may not know anything about each other, we share Christ. He's our, he's our father. We're his children. It says, brethren, my brethren, in verse 2, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally. That's a lot. God will give us a lot. And without reproach, he's not offended when you ask. And it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Eric's teaching from last week that you can still get online if you weren't here. 
or you can pick it up at the media center. It boils down to this. Be patient in trials. Ask God for wisdom and know that he's going to answer you. Know that he's going to answer you. If he's your heavenly father and you ask for something good, and that's, that's the ability to overcome a trial and have the right perspective and have wisdom that you need for that trial, then why wouldn't he give it to you? Of course he's going to give it to you. It might be in his time, but don't doubt. Don't be driven and tossed by the wind. Know that God's going to give you that. So that brings us to verse 9 where we start this morning in our study, and he says, Let the lowly brother glory in exaltation but the rich in his humiliation, because as the flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Perspective, godly instruction for the rich brother in Christ and the poor brother in Christ. Now, the context indeed here is a brother. He says, the lowly, the lowly brother. Let him glory or let him rejoice in his exaltation. In other words, when you're poor, in this life, you might not have a whole lot to glory about. But in heaven, there's riches waiting for us. Jesus said, hey, don't worry. I'm coming back for you. So that where I may be, where, where, where I am, you may be also. And, and, and there's many mansions there. The glories of heaven, the things that await, the universe that God has created for his children to experience, the greater and greater responsibility, whatever that might be after this life and, and, and being with the Lord. Riches, it says, glory in that. Rejoice in that. Don't worry about your financial state. And then he says, but to the rich, the rich brother, in his humiliation. You see, it can be much harder for a rich man to go from riches to poor than a poor person to stay poor. Why? There's a certain amount of humiliation or humility, according to this world, in that. Now, poor is a relative term, in, especially here in America. I can remember growing up when poor might mean that you would get donated jeans or jeans from a garage sale that might have holes in them and you'd be forced to put a patch over them and wear those to school and the rich kids, didn't, they didn't wear patches. Now, poor in America today might mean that you can't buy designer jeans that somebody already else, they put holes in them for you. You see, and so it's extremely relative, rich and poor. Nonetheless, in this life, poor is still looked down upon in general. Poor is something people tend to fear. People don't want to be. Poor is pitied. And rich is still looked up to. It's still envied. It's still seen as something to attain. You see, and, and James says, keep this in perspective, your financial state, because you rich brothers, and he understood that some of the, some of the more wealthy brothers that perhaps had been businesses 
were facing being outcasts from their community, facing prison, facing going from having and having wealth to having not. It says, glory, glory in your humiliation because those riches, they're going to pass away. And if you pursue those riches, and if you're consumed by those riches, you'll pass away just as quickly as they do. Perspective on money. Perspective on money that, that whether you're poor or whether you're rich, don't be consumed by your financial state. There's a whole lot more important things in life than money. And if we're going to be children of the Most High God, then money cannot consume us. Jesus said you can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and money. You can't have two masters. You're either going to be consumed with, with money in your financial state, and you'll be serving that, but you won't be serving me, or you'll be serving me, and that will just be something that, that the Lord will work out in your life. That whatever state you find yourself in, hey, glory in the Lord, glory in your exaltation, or glory in your humiliation, because those riches, they're going to pass away anyway. The instruction, perspective for the rich or the poor to deal with it in a righteous way before the Lord. Verse 12, blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised those who love him. So now he moves into a perspective or a righteousness in dealing with temptation or how to endure temptation. And he says, hey, when you've endured this temptation, then you're going to be approved and you're going to receive the crown of life, which God has promised those who love him. Now, that sounds a little work, works-based, doesn't it? Remember, this is not talking about our salvation. This is instruction in righteousness for those who have already come to Christ Jesus. You're being approved. You're being proved that Christ has done something in your life, that Christ has has caused you to hate sin, to want to endure temptation, to not, to not fall into temptation. Something that Christ died for, I don't want to take part in. I want to endure that. I want to be an overcomer. And so remember that being approved in who we are in Christ, there's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't get you salvation. It only proves that you understand that you have already given your life over to a loving Savior who already owns your life and who already has paid the price for your salvation. And yet James here is, is giving us, is prodding us and saying, hey, this is what it means to walk in righteousness. And verse 13, he says, let no one when he is tempted... Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. In other words, God, did not, God does not think in, in terms of evil. He does not tempt us or allow us a trial or a test toward evil. You see, God is, God is allowing that test or allowing that temptation or those circumstances in your life, and he's thinking about good. He's thinking about good. We, we, we understand this as parents. At some point, our, our children begin to grow and mature, and, and we want to give them responsibilities. Small responsibilities are big responsibilities. 
and we and we want we want them to have those tests in life are we testing them that they might fail are we hoping in the back of our minds hey, I'm gonna tempt my kid toward evil no of course not of course not and james is saying hey Understand that, that when you get in this trial, that it, it, God, God is not tempting you. That, 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 that in no way we can, we can blame God for the temptation toward evil or toward wickedness. He said, God, God has got your best in mind. God has got your best in mind. And yet we give our kids these opportunities and God gives us these opportunities. And the fact of the matter is we can be led away. In verse 14, James tells us why. He says, but each one is tempted toward evil when he is driven, when he, when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, or when I say okay to desire, when I say, all right, desire, let's, let's go ahead and move on with this, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Sin, when it is full grown, in other words, when I remain in it, when I remain in that sin, when it's full grown, it brings forth death. Sin is always the easy way out. Remember again, the context here, he's dealing with people who are under trials and temptations. And there could be perhaps a very easy way out of this trial. You see, if you will just stop talking about Jesus around your Jewish friends, it might save your job. You see, you may be able to keep your riches and still be a Christian. Just don't talk about it. You see, if you just go along with this over here, you can do that over there. And you see the, the temptation to take the easy way out. Sin is always the easy way to fulfillment of our flesh. You see, to be patient, to wait on God, to do it God's way, to follow instruction in righteousness, that can be hard. It can be hard on my flesh. It can be hard on my emotions. And, my, and, and it can be physically hard at times. See? But he says, each one of you, hey, remember, you, it, it's not God that tempted you toward this, but it's you. And if you continue in that sin, if that sin is full grown, then it brings forth death. He says, don't be a dead Christian. Don't be a dead Christian. Don't take the easy way out. Take God's way out. In verse 16, he says this. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. He says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived in this. Don't be throwing accusations at God. Don't be saying, God, where are you? Where, God, I prayed to you. How come you haven't answered to me? That is doubting. And from, and from earlier in chapter 1, he says, don't do that, or you're going to be driven and tossed. Don't be deceived in this. This is not God doing this to you. This is God, this is God seeing you through this if you will do it his way. If you will do it his way. Don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Verse 17, every good gift... Every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, of whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, which, 
that we, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his create creatures. Do not be deceived in this. I meet people from time to time. You know, God just, he just got it out for me. I must have really done something to tick him off. Because my life is just a shambles. I cannot seem to get a break. James says, don't be deceived in that. Don't be throwing accusations at God. Every good gift, every good gift that you need to overcome whatever circumstances you find yourself in as a Christian will come from God and is available from God. Oh, it's going to be in his time. Oh, he's going to allow you to go through that test completely. Why? For your good, so that you will, so that you will grow, so that you will mature, so that you will trust him, so that you will see the blessedness of walking with God and the blessedness of him pouring into you even, even when, boy, this way, that was an easy way out. That, that'd be much easier if I just did this. Put this in the context of a couple struggling in marriage. Wow, that's a, that's a struggle. There's how many Christians take the easy way out? Because that's going to be a tough one. That's going to be a hard one. Every good gift is available to you in your marriage, no matter how dire it is, to have the right perspective, to have the right attitude, to wait and to be patient on God rather than to take, take control of it in your own heart and in your own mind and decide, I'm going to do this, regardless of what God's Word says. He says, every good gift, it's from God, and it's available to you. And there's no shadow of turning. He's not going to change in this. He's not going to be for you one day and against you the next. He brought you forth of his own will that you might be a first fruits of, of, his, creator, of, of his creatures. He brought you forth that, he, that you might be a son or daughter of God. He saved you for a reason, for a purpose. He wants to take you through this. Now, the key to this section and the key to overcoming temptation is back in verse 12. Look there quickly. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The wonderful key to enduring and overcoming temptation is to love God. To love God. You see, we cannot be sinning or in our sin and be loving God at the same time. You can't be saying, well, you know, I'm tight with the Lord and we're tight and I love him, but, you know, I got these things and, well, you know, it just, that's just me and that's my fault. We cannot be complacent in sin and be loving God. Here's the illustration. Husband comes home from work. Wife is there waiting for him and she looks a little different this evening and she lets him know that she just found out today about his affair. And he looks at her and he says, oh, honey, I love you. Would sound a little hollow, wouldn't it? Would sound a little hollow. You know, and we, we understand that when we make it that personal, we get it that close. But with the Lord, it's the same thing. We cannot be complacent in our sin. And to endure that temptation, it's, which we, it's what we all want as Christians, 
oh, Lord, I've I got to love you through this. I've got to love you through this because doing that or taking part in this, you know, or going that way, I've, I've, I've got I've to put my love, love aside, and I never want to do that. Loving God through temptation. Loving God through temptation. Part of loving God is part of fearing the Lord. Solomon said this in Ecclesiastes. At the end of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 12, after pondering all things in life, Solomon kind of sums up all that, he, all that he's seen. And he says this, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. Keep his commandments. For this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Say, now, Robert, you were talking about loving God. What's this about fearing God? What does fear have to do with loving God? Everything. Everything. You see, if you grew up with a father that loved you, a good father, and if you didn't, I apologize this morning. God loves you, and God wants to be your heavenly father. But if you grew up with a father that loved you, that longed to teach you, that longed to show you and, and bring you up and show you love and care for you through your faults and different, different things and give you his wisdom and see you be your best and had your, and had your best in mind as, as he was raising you. And at times that your father would want to correct your mind and your actions. And at times your father would want to correct your behind if he was a good father. And even though he corrected your behind, you see, you still dearly loved him. But there was also a fear of your, of your dad. It wasn't born out of the fact that dad could, would wipe me off the face of the earth and if I do this thing or that thing. It was a fear of respect and of love that I don't want to disappoint dad. I want to do exactly what dad has asked me to do. And if you're a father, you know that the greatest thing that you're looking for out of your children is that as you've given them something good to do and to practice, then they go do it. You're like, yeah, that's my boy. That's my daughter. No greater joy than to see your children do that. And so fearing God in that way and fearing his judgments and his commandments, fearing the fact that this morning we're being taught to, 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 to walk and to deal with trials in, in a righteous way and taking that and go, oh, Lord, that's exactly what I want to do. That's loving God. And that's loving God through the temptation and overcoming that temptation. Verse 19. Verse 19. He says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. James knew that trials and temptations would be a breeding ground for conflict. And he's now telling us as, as Christians how we deal righteously, righteous instruction on conflict that would come into our lives. Conflict always comes into our lives. Every day. Sometimes it's small. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's out of the blue. Sometimes we see it coming. And he's saying that, that we should be swift to hear, slow to speak, 
and slow to wrath because you see every conflict brings with it a great opportunity to become angry, to become mad, to become frustrated because you see that conflict, I didn't count on it and it's taking my time and it's bothersome to me. And now I'm mad. And now the conflict gets worse if I'm not careful. So he says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Because if we start off by getting mad and we're full of wrath, then there's a good chance that we're going to be slow to hear, quick to speak, and quick to wrath. And swift to, swift to hear means that we gather all the information. Everything that I can before making any judgments, swift to hear. Slow to speak means that I've thought about what I'm going to say before I stick my foot in my mouth. Now, for those of you who are extroverted, this may be a little extra challenge. That's okay. Because you tend to think and speak. And the introverts tend to think and speak after they've, after they've thought about it a little while and churned it up. And an extrovert thinks it and boom. It comes right out of there. You know what? That's, that's a gift to a certain extent. A gift that God wants to help you with and refine. So here's what we do in conflict. Here's what we do um, if we're faced with a potential situation where we could get off or we could get angry. Pray that God would give you wisdom, number one. Just pray that God would give you wisdom. Now, you may not be on your knees. You may be standing there right in front of the person who's got you're having conflict with you. Lord, help me. Give me wisdom here, number one. Number two, restrain any anger or comment until you have all the facts. So slow to anger, slow to speak, quick to hear. Number three, make opportunity to hear and gather all the facts. In other words, quick to hear, quick to get all the information and all the perspective that I can on this thing. And then number four, pray that the Lord would help you react in a righteous way. Slower to speak, slower to wrath. Now, think of the senseless arguments, the hours that we've spent not doing this, and yet just battering back and forth, you see, and not, not using God's wisdom, but yet anger was fueling that conflict. Anger fueled that whole conversation. Imagine the hours that we can save now if we will put this into practice. If you'll recognize, hey, I have a propensity in this area, lots of conflict, if you'll recognize that, you know what, yeah, that's me this morning. I've got, a, I've got an issue with anger, and it thwarts me. Because, Christian, if you have an issue with anger, then you've got conflict at every turn, at work, at family, in personal relationships. Because we all get frustrated. We, we, all, we all have times when we're, when we're tested, and anger never takes me where I want to go. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I cannot be a Christian and think that it's okay to be angry and fly off the handle even if I'm right in principle. Anger is not a Appropriate. It's not going to. It's not going to give me what I want. It's not going to cause me to walk walk in righteousness, and in fact, it'll cause me to walk in unrighteousness. 
So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Verse 21. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. He says filthiness, overflow of wickedness, it's got to go out and what's got to come in and replace it is the word of God. The word of God that he describes as being implanted or, or the old King James engrafted into me. In other words, just by spending time with the Word of God at church or at home, it's being implanted in there. It's being filed away in files in your heart, in your mind, in your emotions that you can now use. But the filthiness and the overflow of wickedness, it's got to go. You see, the Christians in, in James' time had just as much opportunity as we do toward wickedness? Does technology in our world seem that it's getting worse and worse and worse? Sure. But the heart of men have not changed. Wickedness was always an, ap- an option. Sin was always an option. And the overflowing of it was an, always an option to be engaged in. And James says, hey, deal with it. Get, it, get that out. And then get the word in. Because that word, that implanted word, it's able to save your souls. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which Paul said in Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power unto salvation for those who believe. For every believer, for the Jew first and then for the Greek. In other words, if you will just spend time in God's word, if you will read it to someone else, and you do enough of that, the potential there is that alone, that alone will bring you into salvation, into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Something that powerful is the, is the thing that's being implanted in your heart and in your mind. Gosh, I've got to get the junk out so I get lots of room in my heart and my mind for something like that. He says that's step one. Look at, look at verse 22. He says, but... But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, This one will be blessed in what he does. James says, number one, get the wickedness out and the word implanted in. But number two, the second part of that process is that it it makes a difference in your life, that it makes a difference in what you do. It makes a difference in what you say, that you're a doer of the word. Otherwise, you're just looking at a mirror. You're just looking in a mirror and you're walking away and you're not understanding what time, type of person it is that you, that you are. Now, most of the time when we look in the mirror, we're looking for imperfections. We're looking for a blemish or a nose here out of place, something that we can fix. Every once in a while, you look in the mirror and it's, everything's good, everything's in place, everything's where I want it to be. 
And then there's sometimes when we look in the mirror and God gives us spiritual eyes. And it's not about our appearance at all, is it? Do you ever look in the mirror and see idiot stamped right across your forehead? And if no one's around, you might speak a little word to yourself. You idiot. Why? Because we look in that mirror and we see an imperfection. We see an imperfection. You see, and James says, if we come on Saturday night and Sunday morning and we look into the mirror through God's word, we receive instruction in righteousness and it shows us where we're at. It shows us some imperfections. And then on Monday, we're no different. We didn't fix it. We didn't fix our hair. We didn't fix whatever it is that's wrong, whatever we saw in that mirror. He says, then you're a forgetful here. He says, don't, don't be like that. The second part of this whole deal is that if you're coming here and then the, the words are being implanted, then it should be alive in the things that you do. It should be evident in, in your life by the things that you say and the things that you do. Men is the word telling you to, to press in to loving your wife more, to praying for her more, to understanding her when, when you're just off, when her emotions are here and your emotions are there, and being patient with her. Ladies, perhaps, perhaps the word is telling you, you know what, I just need to speak better of my husband and to my husband. I need to be quick to hear him, slow to, slow to speak and slow to wrath. Then you, see, then you see you need to do that. You need to do that. You need to fix that blemish or else you're not a doer of the word. You see, and, and if we don't become doers, if we, don't, if we don't come here, get the implanted word and then go out and do it, then what, what use are we? The, the word is, has not changed anything. The word has not changed us as a, as a community of believers. The word has not changed our families. The word has not changed uh, my work environment because I haven't allowed God to, to work through me in these things. Verse 25 again, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, this is where we want to be, this is where we want to live, and continues in it and does not and is not a forgetful here, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Christian brothers and sisters, there's not a one of us here that doesn't want to go out there next week and be blessed in everything that we do. And so we've got to, we've got to take what we learn. We've got to take what we're reminded of when we, when we read our devotions in the morning, and then we've, we've got to use it. Because you see, the longer we don't, then the more we get used to that. And the more we get used to coming to church and getting our fill, feeling good, it's about me, and I go out there and I live the same way. James says, no, don't be like that. Do the word. Do the word. Receive it in and do it. Verse 26, if anyone among you thinks he is religious 
and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart. There's that deception again. Deceives his own heart. This one's religion is useless. Useless religion, James is talking about here. A useless practice of religion. And he he gives the illustration of someone not bridling their tongue. In, in, In other words, if I drove to church this morning and someone cut me off perhaps and I rolled down the window and gave him the what for and the blankety blank and the this and the that and then I came into church and lifted my hands and praised the Lord. James says it's useless. You would have been better off going to McDonald's and lifting a Big Mac to your face. (laughs) Funny illustration, but how true. How true and how many times we can mess up and cause someone to, to think, why do I want his religion? Because what came out of his mouth is nowhere near sanctified, is nowhere near glorified, is nowhere near anything that I see useful in my life. So if you don't bridle your tongue, The religion you think you practice, it's useless. Ruins your witness. But then he goes on to tell us what's pure and undefiled, what we can be practicing. He says, verse 27, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Pure and undefiled religion. Now, this morning, if I said, you know what, in the foyer as you go out, we're going to have a sale this morning. We're going to be selling some gold. I've got an eight foot table, and on the left side of the eight foot table, I've got some 14 karat gold, which is about 58% pure. It's got some impurities in it. And on the right side of the table, I've got some 24 karat gold, 99.9% pure. And this morning in the, in the foyer, I'm going to sell it for $400 an ounce. Now, each and every one of you that had $400 would go and buy at least one ounce, I guarantee it, because you know anything about gold, it's about $1,250 an ounce right now. So you would want to buy some. Now, where, which side of the table would you want to buy if it's the same price? You'd buy that 24 karat gold, wouldn't you? Because it's pure. It's worth a whole lot more. James says, pure religion. Religion that's worth a whole lot more to you and to me and to the Lord and to our families and to those that we work with and to those that we come in contact with. What's, what's pure and, 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 and useful it's to visit orphans and widows. That's, that's, in other words, do something no matter Christian. And remember, he's talking to Christians that had their own trials, but he's focusing them on people who are less fortunate than themselves and telling them, go bless them. Go do something with them. Go help them out. It says pure and undefiled. That's number one. Number two is to keep yourself unspotted from the world. You know, we come to church a lot and we, and we hear and we talk and we're exhorted, turn that movie off, turn that TV off, turn that radio off. Don't you dare be watching R-rated movies, these types of things. 
Why? Why? It's not just legalism to turn that music off. It's not just legalism to not watch that movie. It's not just legalism to get that TV program out of your life. It's pure and it's undefiled before the Lord. You see, because he looks down at us as his children and he sees us putting those things away that he died for. And it's pure and it's undefiled in his sight. You see, and and James has just revealed that to us this morning that, wow, wow, I can have something that's pure and undefiled, and I I can actually do something that's pure and undefiled, that as God looks down on on me, and and, and he's proud of it, and he's, oh, that's, that's my boy, that's my girl. Look what they're doing. Look what they've chosen to do in their trial and in their struggle. They've chosen to go bless someone else and not concentrate on on their issues. They're remaining helping someone else and blessing someone else less fortunate to them. And and look at him. Look at him turning away from that sin. Oh, that's why I died. That's why I wanted to give him that good gift. That's why I gave him the word of God and, and implanted it in their heart and their mind. Remember, As we come each and every Sunday and you're diligent to do that and you read the word, there's files in your mind, in your heart, in your emotions. And we're to go to those files every single day. And when we do, the Lord says, oh, well done. Well done. So today, the instruction in righteousness, the instruction for rich and poor, don't be consumed by your financial state, whether you find yourself rich or poor. The instruction in righteousness to endure temptation. Never stop loving God. Get his good gift that he wants to give you to be an overcomer in that temptation or that trial. The instruction in righteousness in dealing with conflict. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath and anger. And the instruction in the practice in a pure and undefiled religion to bless someone less fortunate than myself and to keep myself away from sin, to keep myself unspotted from the world. The instruction today. So as, you, as we looked into this mirror today, what did you see? What did you see? What is it that you're going to change this next week? If you have to, write it down, because we tend to be a little forgetful when Monday hits. If you have to, write it down. If you have to, tell somebody else. Hey, the Word of God did this in my life and revealed this in my life, and I want to be different. I want to change, you know? Perhaps tell a Christian brother or sister, keep me accountable to this thing. I want to be a doer of the Word and not just a hearer. What did the mirror show us this morning? That God loves us. He cares for us. He has everything for us to be overcomers. Oh, does he want to change us? Does he want us to have a standard? Absolutely, absolutely. But we can't overcome. Walk in righteousness. Walk in righteousness. Let's pray. Father.